Are you loving the fall? Yes. I went to the East Coast one time in the fall and I thought, why? I missed all the beauty in Ashland. Our rivers and streams have climbed their banks and the salmon are jumping up rainy falls, if you get a chance to hike there. Paths are decorated with yellow and red leaves and trees are hoarding the sunlight, preparing for winter. And our usually frugal house temperatures are seeming inadequate for the first chilly or foggy mornings, and so we're inching up the settings. We resist the cycle that turns life into death, as does my last yellow squash plant, still producing those yellow flowers, and every day growing by about an inch, trying still to push forth one more edible bite before the frost takes it out. But its leaves are dusty and gray with dew and mold and it's getting black spots <laughs> like the rest of us. <laughs> and like the rest of us, it's headed toward the compost pile. And this is a season in which we notice these things, the cycles of life and of decaying and of death. And generations after generations have done this, as we know from the Celts to other religious traditions to our own Halloween experience and the Day of the Dead and all of these holidays reminding us that this is the season in which we become less active and more introspective. A season when we are out less and we are in more. Where we are gathering with friends and family, it used to be even harder to survive the winter, but it is still winter around us in many ways, and we still face challenges in it. So it is a great time that the church has chosen to reflect about gratitude and sainthood. Last week, Philip reminded us that we are all saints. And I recalled the first time I went to seminary, too long ago to say when, um, to become a pastor, maybe a present-day saint, and my first experience at seminary was pure anxiety. Could I live up to God's call? Could I follow Jesus? It didn't help that we sang a song in church, and probably there at seminary in the chapel, are you worthy, said the master, to be crucified with me? Whew. Sign me up. And the chorus then comes in, yay, the sturdy dreamer answered, do you know it? To the death we follow thee. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. This isn't what I thought I was signing up for. And then we study all of those scriptural saints, and it doesn't look much better. Sign up today. Go with Jonah who gets appointed to serve the church in Nineveh. We used to think of Winnemucca in this regard. <laughs> uh, 
sorry if any of you are fond of it. I mean, I'm not sorry you're fond of it, but oh, anyway. So Jonah decides not to go to Nineveh, ends up in the belly of a whale, as you know, and gets spit out back in Nineveh because he couldn't really get out of his call. Well, or you could sign up with Isaiah, who sees visions of skeletons rising out of the ground in a really Halloween-esque scene. Or you can become like various disciples in the early church. They're tortured and killed in a lot of ways, standing up, upside down, skinned alive, breasts cut off, you name it. It doesn't look good. It's not what we think of when we think of modern-day sainthood. In Paris, there are several creepy statues of a guy named Saint-Denis, Saint Denis, third century bishop, who was so good at spreading the gospel that he was arrested by the locals. And do you know what they did with him? They beheaded him, but he outsmarted them by picking up his head. And he walked across town, uphill, by the way, six miles before he died. And now there's a beautiful cathedral there. Beautiful cathedral. Don't miss it. Are you ready to sign up yet? You could get a cathedral named after you. You just have to carry your head away. Or maybe you would aspire to become like St. Margaret of Antioch. She was a third century saint, called as a teenager, went into a holy convent, but a Roman governor decided to uh, force her into marriage instead. And when she refused him, he had her thrown in prison. Now that would be bad enough, but apparently Satan showed up inside her prison cell. I don't know how. It disguised as a dragon and ate her whole. But she had a cross on which came in handy. And she cut her way out of the dragon. And is eligible, of course, for sainthood at that point. <laughs> what I hope is that gained her way back to the holy order uh, so that she didn't have to marry that jerk. Well, you could slay a dragon, couldn't you? Sign on up. All right. Well, perhaps you don't need to. Perhaps you don't need a cathedral made after you, named for you. Perhaps you need a cathedral in your heart. Perhaps you would just need a cathedral here in the sanctuary, a cathedral in your home, a place in your home to light a candle. And perhaps you don't have to be like Margaret, slaying the dragon, but maybe there's a fear you have right now that you could overcome. And maybe your friend has a fear you could help your friend overcome. And so maybe you can be a saint in many ways. I like it in Methodism that there is this emphasis on ordinary saints. And turning to Methodism allowed me to understand that I didn't have to have fortitude or even constant faithfulness or even raw courage 
to know and love and serve Jesus Christ. I also face the reality that it's not easy, and it's definitely complicated. It is not casual. It involves a lively relationship with God and daily meditation on the promises that our psalmist talks about today. You'll have to dig into this faithfulness that God is near you because you are called. That God fills your desires, hears your cries, and watches over you. This is what we lean into in order to be current day saints. Sometime back when I was feeling discouraged about my counseling practice and my call, a friend of mine just wrote on a piece of paper this little line, you need do nothing but be an instrument of peace and healing. You need do nothing but be an instrument of peace and healing. And when I whittled down all the complications of call to those simple sentences, everything lightened up. And I became less tied up in my ego about it. So when we look at sainthood with a smaller s, the kind that St. Sherman the puppet told us about last week, then we can sign up with our reservation. If just one person says that you have blessed their life, you are a saint. Perhaps you showed up at just the right moment, gave the speech someone needed to hear, cut through somebody's baloney so that they would get on over to AA, paid the extra dime at the grocery store when somebody didn't have enough change in front of you. Maybe you helped a friend make it to the bathroom after surgery. Maybe you brought over that extra pie that you baked. You are eligible for sainthood with an act of kindness, maybe a disrespectful word that you wanted to say but swallowed back, or the silence when you prayed for someone who couldn't pray for themselves. These are moments for saints. So our pastors, who I will tell you a bit more about, are both of a sort to want to think of themselves as pastors with small s's in mind. They are extraordinary in their calls to ministry, and they think of themselves as ordinary saints. What they both have in common is that they are incredibly humble about their work, strongly dedicated, and willing to take risks. They give themselves to each other freely as instruments of peace and healing. I don't think they have ever slayed dragons. Philip? Not real big fiery ones. Some other kinds of dragons. Well, and I don't think you had to cut your way out of a dragon, Tarita. 
maybe not brought real bones back into skeleton form, but maybe brought some old bones back to life spiritually. They both have lively relationships with God, and it is such a great blessing that we have these two among us. Well, I'm going to tell you more about Dorita, and you may know some of this. I was delighted to interview her about her call. She was called at an early age as a teacher, spiritual artist, and process theologian. She is, and I quote her on this, extremely right-brained. When she came to study in the U.S. Uh, to Skerritt Seminary then in Nashville, she still imagined that her mission field would be back home in Brazil. She is the third generation of missionaries in her family. But once she was at seminary, as she moved more deeply into her call and the nature of her missionary uh, work changed, actually it changed globally, she realized that she was actually called to be a missionary in the States. This call confirmed each day as her work centers among us and with the children and in her outreach to the homeless. She said, I am called to treat people with compassion and dignity. She is excited that she has many opportunities to build the reign of God, whether that is with children or youth in the church or over at Walker School or on a mission trip back to Brazil or with Uncle Foods on Tuesdays. She often engages in what she calls quiet service, things none of us know she is doing. When I asked her about the future, she shared several exciting visions that she says will need practical partners from us in the congregation. She would like to develop an after-school program for children that has a focus on peace and respect and counters the cultural messages that kids receive in the dominant culture. She dreams about expanding an education program in the church with ample lay leaders to join her with creative thinking and planning. And perhaps an after-school program will be part of this. I asked her, why does she do this work? And she said, because I see little miracles all the time in prayer with and for people in great need. And she says that on Tuesdays, God shows up unexpectedly. And I know these little miracles happen because she embodies our Methodist slogan, open hearts, open hands, open doors, in ways that deeply respect all people as saints. She blesses us with her many gifts and her deeply faithful witness. Dorita, would you receive our gift? Come on.
When our bishop assigned Pastor Philip to serve among us a year and some months ago, it was an unexpected gift. His mentor, Thomas Merton, has written about faith as a journey through unknown territory. Merton says, you do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it's all going. What you need is to recognize the possibilities and the challenges offered in the present moment and to embrace them with courage and faith and hope. And this is what we did in welcoming Philip and what he did in coming to be among us. He was almost immediately on his arrival to Ashland thrown into the unwanted and unexpected ending of his marriage. And his witness in facing this transition in his own life with honesty, at the same time getting to know us and serve us, speaks to his strength and his integrity. Philip described his call to ministry in this way. Now, I didn't see you beforehand to ask you, what instrument were you playing in the band? This could be several different instruments. <laughs> Anything with strings? Guitar. At age 18, Philip said his church life was pretty ego-driven. <laughs> he was playing in a band at church camp and in his church. And at 18, we're all a little full of ourselves, aren't we? And at church camp, a young camper came up to him, apparently, and asked if he could pray for Philip. It was apparently a powerful prayer. Maybe he'll fill us in on that. Because Philip said to me, five minutes before that moment, I did not know my vocation. And five minutes after that, I knew. From that moment on, he forged a different sense of pastoral spirituality. Again, from his mentor, Thomas Merton, we do not exist for ourselves alone. It is only when we are fully convinced of this fact that we begin to love ourselves properly and thus also love others. He was transformed with humility and loving service. And his commitment to his faith journey and relationship with Christ takes him on pilgrimages, on pilgrimages and into scriptures. But when you are with Philip, what you get is that he is very attuned to you in a very kind and loving way. I ask if he perceives himself perhaps to be more of a rabbi than a CEO. And he said yes. He sees his leadership as giving congregational members space and time for us to develop our own programs and acts of service and that that would form organically up from the ground, from our initiation and our callings. He highly values his work as preacher, spends many, many long hours engaging with the word. He said in seminary his preaching teacher told him that he should be able to speak as if he was speaking at a eulogy for somebody he dearly loved. 
that he would be that intimately familiar with the text. And he said, while I don't memorize every word of my manuscripts, I always know exactly what I will say. It's more like jazz. I know the key. I know the notes that need to be played. I've memorized the song. Now I can improvise between the notes. I have appreciated, and I'm sure you have, his vast knowledge of scripture and that you gain new insights from his preaching every week. I could say each week there is a different musical theme, and they are all centered upon our relationship with Christ. He takes a look at fresh ways that God is active in our world. He says, I am deeply committed to reclaiming the ordinary as an opportunity for transformation. Well, in our annual charge conference report, Philip said that Paul prompted his list of gratitudes. That Paul always started uh, by celebrating community and relationships when he wrote letters to his beloved disciples. And so Philip did the same, and he wrote this conclusion at that note. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that when I thank, uh, think of you, I give thanks to God for you and support for your support and for your presence in the community. He said, in the coming year, I'm confident that we will have new seasons of difficulty and new seasons of promise and hope and get this last one. This one really gets to me. Sheer excitement. That sounds good, doesn't it? Are you ready to sign up? Philip, we share your gratitude that we are the church together. Dorita, we look forward to our year ahead with you. If these two are what sainthood looks like, will you say after me, sign me up? Okay? Sign me up. Great.